On a dark desert night. A small voice calls. Sister, will you tell us a tale? Jinn, Magians, Sultans, Buried Treasure. We're going to explore what they say about their cultures then and why they captivate us now. Light your lamp and pour some tea while we retell you a thing. Welcome back to the podcast. Great to have you with us for yet another 1001 Nights episode. I'm doing finger pew, guns. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> you normally make the sound too. I had to do it for you. Pew, 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 pew. <laughs> I don't know why I was doing finger guns. It was just the 4th of July here in the United States where we celebrate by shooting off explosives into the sky. And if you live in the American South like I do, people shoot guns into the sky as well. And if you live in the American West, like I do, uh, you light the country on fire. That's true. And if you don't live in America at all, you don't care. So we're going to move on. (laughs) But before we get into the episode about the Thousand and One Nights, I wanted to fulfill a promise that we made several episodes ago, where we read a bunch of really nice things people had said about us in their reviews that they left us, mostly on iTunes. I actually haven't been able to find reviews on other platforms. So if you've left reviews on those other platforms, thank you very much. Maybe write in and let us know how to find those because for some reason I can't, but the iTunes ones come very directly to me. So we've got a couple and they were super nice. So we got one that said, very fun and educational. You guys work really well together. Loving the retelling with the backstory thrown in. Super interesting. And that was from Long Famdy via Apple Podcasts. So I was like, that was really nice. That was. And I'm, I'll read the next one and then talk about something that I'm like, oh, this comes up in a lot of these and I really like it. So this one was great too. The title was My Favorite Podcast, which I feel very honored anytime anyone says our podcast is their favorite. But this person also starts off by saying this. My family and friends could tell you I'm a bit of a podcast addict. I get super bored if I'm not listening to entertaining or educational conversation while I drive and do mindless tasks. This podcast is both entertaining and educational. I love Katrina and Jeff's humor and how they play off of each other. And then in a parenthetical, guys, I don't know why, but this is an animal husbandry podcast gets me every time, which that's my favorite of our like ongoing (laughs) jokes as well. Despite the great humor, they examine the cultures and mindsets represented in the tales respectfully and fairly. I tell everyone about this podcast and can't believe I haven't already left a review. Keep up the amazing work, fairy tellers. And that was from an account on Apple Podcasts called Oswego or as we go, maybe. I don't know. As we go. But thank you so much for writing in, both of you. Um, I love when people come in and they talk about like our chemistry or like how well we work together. Because for me, that's the fun of the podcast too. It's just like hanging out, having fun and riffing off of each other and just having a good time. So I'm glad other people recognize that and enjoy it about our podcast yeah, as well. That we're just friends that like to hang out and <laughs> Yeah. That you're such a good friend that has humored me for years when I'm talking about random topics. And I also find it entertaining and educational to learn about fairy tales from you. So thanks to these two individuals for writing reviews for us. It really does a lot, apparently, with kind of the algorithm as far as how things get discovered when people leave reviews, especially good reviews and especially ones that have comments attached. Helps other people find the podcast, which is kind of our main goal. We just like to have people listening and interacting with us. So thank you so much for doing that. So if you are listening here and you haven't left a review and you like the podcast, go ahead and do that. And like as we go, 
tell your family and friends via your own mouth as well, because the more the merrier here on the fairy tellers. Yep. And that is usually the number one way that podcasts can grow their audience is when a friend shares their favorite podcast with somebody. So if you did that, we would greatly appreciate it. All right. Now on to the episode. Yes. And of course, what I am going to say is I'm super excited for this episode. What <laughs> <laughs> are these days? What <laughs> are these days you're going to be like, guys, this episode, I'm really not looking forward to it. It's going to be just terrible. Why don't you just turn it off? You know, what's even the point? I feel like I got a little close to that when we were when we did the last episode for the taming of the shrew. Uh-huh. Because like I so much like disliked that story. Uh-huh. It just like it makes me want to like scream into a pillow. Or like scream into a void, which I mean, kind of that's what the <laughs> <laughs> That's what the podcast That was did. the podcast was was me uh getting some of that out of my soul. So yeah, it was funny because it was like I think I came close to not being excited about right. the, I was excited, very excited about the information. Just but like not the, the tale. Yeah, the tale. I was like, mm, this is gonna be rough. But also I will say too, you are seemingly from my perspective, especially excited about this one, because you've been telling me how great like the story and stuff is for this episode for yeah. a couple weeks. So I'm like really looking forward to it. I haven't read it except for the portion that I'm gonna be doing. So I'm I'm really looking forward to hearing it. Yes. I'm super I I was even like reading passages out loud to my husband. I was on a trip. We went to go see my parents who we'd not I hadn't taken my kids to go see them for like two years, obvious for 2020 reasons. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> and so once my husband and I were like fully vaccinated, we were like, we need to go and see my like parents. And so while we were traveling, I was like reading sections of this story, the city of brass to my husband and having really good conversations. So I'm excited to have like really good conversations with you, Jeff. Yay. So the story of the city of brass is a story that is going to include characters and themes that we have been talking about in a lot of our past episodes. So one thing that I'm loving about doing this series is that the more episodes that we get under our belts, the more stories that we've like talked about and discussed and looked at like these little pieces, the more that we can gain from the like the stories in these later episodes just automatically that we're like oh i know this character like oh this theme again so yeah it's like the stories and what we're getting from them is just like becoming like richer and richer and so i'm really enjoying that with this series yeah me too and there's some of that and at least the part that i'm telling too like one of my favorite things has been this like crazy connection between king solomon and yes he was basically the ghostbusters of like the, the ancient Middle East. Which, like, it's interesting to view him as that kind of a character after, like, if you only know him from the Christian Old Testament, it's funny, like, when he pops up in his stories, yeah, like, acting like a Ghostbuster. <laughs> so the City of Brass is an epic journey through the questions with the knowledge that we all will someday die How do I need to live my life? And how can an empire crumble? (laughs) So, of course, these like really light questions. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) 
In Stranger Magic, Marina Warner describes this story as, quote, a grand extended meditation on vanity. Oh, interesting. Yeah, I'm like, it, uh, I, I, I really enjoyed, like, the richness that is this story. It's not that it's, like, a particularly long story. It's just, yeah. it's very, very dense with, like, philosophical and religious questions. Uh-huh. So this story is it's full of religious references. And one of the main focuses of the story is to live a life that's close to God and a life that's free of sin. We'll obviously be talking about that aspect because it's very overt. But even <laughs> if you aren't a religious person or a person who believes in a future heaven or hell paradise punishment type afterlife, there's still a lot of great themes to discuss and plot of this tale. So we're probably going to mainly focus on those. But there's also definitely this, like, it's very strong, like, religious themes. So before we get into the story too far, some interesting things to consider while we go through it. First, uh, Marina Warner in her book Stranger Magic says, Shahrazad begins to relate the tale of the City of Brass on the 567th night, past the center of the vortex of her stories. It is a slow, magnificent, melancholy tale of a quest within a quest, a sober elegy to human littleness and mortality, condensing major themes of the nights, end quote. So we'll definitely be talking about this theme and the great quotes and poetry that come up in the story, because that, ugh, I it is so rich with, like, really good, like, poetry and lines. But absolutely when she's like... <laughs> A somber LG to human littleness and mortality. I'm like, yeah, a melancholy, <laughs> a melancholy tale. <laughs> like, yeah, that's what I'm into. So secondly, something to keep in mind as we're reading is something that Robert Irwin says in The Arabian Nights, A Companion. Because I think in the last episode I, of The Thousand One Nights, I never quoted The Arabian Nights, A Companion. It should be illegal. It should be illegal. <laughs> But anyway, so in there, Robert Irwin says, there are many tales featuring treasure hunts in the nights, among them, the city of brass. Most of these stories are of Egyptian origin for Egypt, where tomb robbers had searched for thousands of years for the lost treasures of the pharaohs was preeminently the home of Mu Taliban or professional treasure hunters. Treasure hunters in medieval Egypt were not just the stuff of fantasy and fiction. In fact, treasure hunting was both an occult science and a professional occupation. As a science, it demanded from its students a knowledge of ancient lore and sorcery. As a profession, it demanded courage. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. It makes me want to be a treasure hunter. Oh, no. Like <laughs> a long, not in Egypt. That's I'm, how you get cursed. I'm a coward. <laughs> But there's a ton of, you know, sunken treasure, like all along, like the, you know, eastern coast of the United States, supposedly that's missing, just like, you know, from back in ye old pirating times yeah. and stuff like that. Not just like that pirates took it, like buried, like buried treasure, because that I think is kind of mostly a myth, if I'm not mistaken. Not a myth, but, you know, like a not legend. true made up thing, a legend. But yeah, but there are literally are like tons of shipwrecks that just like there's tons of gold just missing. I was like, wow, let's go get it, you know. Let's go get it. The noblest profession. <laughs> Indeed. Um, 
So if you take a look at like the timelines we're talking about, so the pyramids in Giza that are kind of the most famous today pyramids, uh, they were built around 2500 BC and there were a lot of burials before and after those were built that contained treasures and there were lots of empires that had risen and fallen in between, you know, the time of all that happening. And then these stories that were being told in the Middle East during the medieval period. So that's a lot of time for there to be yeah. treasures buried and lost and hunted down and found. And so you can see why stories of treasure hunting and the lore behind treasure hunting would be interesting uh, to these people at this time. And even, I mean, obviously treasure hunting is still something people are interested today. Yeah. And it's like, because it's like partly legend, but partly true. And from like more modern times, looking at, you know, treasures that have been found inside of like pyramids and giant burial grounds and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. We know that there are booby traps. Yeah. Which fascinating yeah <laughs> that even like back then you know they had rigged up there to be like you know these obstacles that had to be overcome and so that's definitely something to be thinking about when we're retelling this story because some of those <laughs> kind of elements will come up they really knew how to gamify the treasure hunting back in the day <laughs> <laughs> i'm not i'm not sure if that was their goal <laughs> <laughs> But it's a very positive way to look at traps. So the story begins with Shahrazad saying, I have also heard that in the old days in Damascus, there was a caliph. And one day while he was sitting with the kings and the sultans of his empire, they began to discuss tales of past peoples and came to the stories of our master Solomon, son of David, on both of whom be peace, which contained accounts of what almighty God had granted to him by way of rule and authority over mankind, jinn, birds, beasts, and so on. People who have listened to our previous episodes should already be kind of, you know, picking up hints on this of what's going on. So she says, we've heard from our predecessors that Almighty God gave to our master Solomon what he gave to no one else, and Solomon advanced to a stage that no one else has reached in that he could imprison gin, madrids, and devils in brass bottles, which he could close up with lead, adding his seal. <laughs> so if you've been following along with our Thousand One Nights deep dive, you'll remember from episode 45... I'm a Ginny in a Bottle Baby. <laughs> Probably the best title we've come up with for an episode Definitely. ever. Oh, yeah. So you'll know exactly what this story is referencing. They aren't referencing a, a story that's found inside of the Thousand and One Nights. They're referencing a story that was found in the Testament of Solomon, which is a apocryphal tale believed to predate the 5th century A.D., so well before Dang. the night started to like really be recorded in what we know today. Mm -hmm. So that's always, it's always good to know the further backstory of like a tale when you're retelling yeah. it. So especially when it's so cool. <laughs> yeah. Especially when it's so cool. You've got demon vampires <laughs> there. Yeah. Wind monsters, just a lot of good stuff. Like we said, Solomon was a ghostbuster. Yep. So the caliph is sitting there. 
hearing these people telling these stories about King Solomon and the powers that he had. So then this guy named Talib, who's going to pop up throughout the story. There's a lot of names in this story, and I'm going to try to make it as easy as possible to like remember who these like, people are. So Talib, a man who works in the court of the caliph, he then told a story of a man who had sailed to the land of India with a number of other people. And during the course of their voyage, the wind had taken them off course to an unknown land that they had never seen before. And they reached it in the middle of the night. When they got to, when they started to get off of the ship, there were black people who had come out to see what was going on with their boat. And these people lived on these caves along this coast and they didn't speak Arabic. And so when they heard these men speaking Arabic, they went to go get their king who for some reason did know how to speak Arabic, <laughs> even though they were apparently on this like African island that no yeah. one had ever heard of before. <laughs> And so the king came out and he was really friendly and welcomed all the visitors, was really kind to them, wanted to like feed them and talk with them. And the sailors asked about like what the local religion of the area was. And this this is important later in the story is why I'm going into it. Um, so they asked about, you know, what the local religion there was. And uh, the king told them that they practiced a very ancient religion that predated this island and it predated Muhammad. They, you know, found that really interesting culturally, I guess. And it comes up later in the story. <laughs> so the king gave them fish to eat because that's what they had in abundance on this island. <laughs> Tis the nature of islands. <laughs> People eat a lot of seafood when they live by the sea. It's wild, Crazy. but it's true. Uh, <laughs> so the sailors were sitting and watching the fishermen along the shore, casting out their nets into the sea to get those fish. And when they were pulling those nets back out, they kept finding these like brass bottles with a lead seal stamped with the seal of Solomon, son of David. So the sailors watched as these fishermen just like scooped those bottles out of their nets that were full of fish and they'd pick up the bottles and they'd break open the top. And then this like blue smoke would rise out of the bottle high up into the sky. And the sailors were terrified when these like clouds of smoke solidified into a gin. And then in a loud booming voice, the gin would shout out, Prophet of God, I repent, I repent. And then the smoke would like zoom off over their heads and go like over the mountaintops and disappear. And the sailors were like, oh my gosh, what was that? What just happened? And, you know, we're obviously like terrified. And when they looked at you know, the people of this island and like the fishermen, they were just like, oh, yeah, it happens. Like, you know, that's just what happens when you break open one of those bottles, <laughs> acting like nothing had happened at all. And so, you know, Talib, who's telling this story to the Khalif, he goes on to, you know, say, 
what his informant, who was a sailor on that ship, had told him when he asked him about the bottles. And that was like, oh, this was one of the jinn whom Solomon sent him David in his anger imprisoned in bottles like these before sealing them with lead and throwing them into the sea here. Very often when the fishermen cast their nets, they bring up the bottles. And when they're broken, a jinn comes out. He thinks that Solomon is still alive and so repents and calls out, I repent, prophet of God. <laughs> They're just like, oh, yeah, it's no big deal. It's just, you know, that's what happens. So the caliph is absolutely astonished when he is hearing Talib telling this story about, you know, these sailors and their adventure mm. when they had been trying to sail to India. So he is astonished and he wants to see like to witness these bottles for himself as kind of like a faith affirming, you know, witness of like the powers and the gifts that were given to Solomon. So in this like storytelling group that was going on, there was a man that said, what Talib told you is true. Solomon used to put these disobedient ones in brass bottles, which he threw into the sea. So he's like, totally like, Oh yeah, I've heard about this too, which is so interesting because We've all heard about it because we all, you know, have heard the story from the Testament of Solomon. (laughs) So the caliph was super, super excited to hear this. And he said, like, I want to see this for myself. I want to go to that place and see it for myself. That sounds amazing. I want to go there. And so Talib tells the caliph that he should not leave the palace. It would endanger, you know, himself physically and also, you know, leave space for somebody to take over the kingdom, you know, if he's been gone, if he's gone for a long time on this quest. But instead, he should send his brother, Abd al-Aziz and Musa ibn Nuzar, who was a leader in the area that was supposed to be closer to where the bottles were. Um, and he should just send those two uh, to fetch the bottles that he wanted to see and have them brought back. That way the caliph didn't have to, you know, leave, go anywhere. So the caliph said that that all sounded great and told Talib that he wanted him to be his emissary on this mission and that the caliph would look after Talib's family in his absence so he didn't have to worry about that while he was on his long quest. Which, I always love it when that pops up in, like, stories because it always seems to be, like, one of the most important, like, planning details is, like, mm-hmm. like okay, before you go on this, like, long, dangerous journey, let's make sure your family's, like, all set up and, like... Okay. And it's like, it's a little detail, but I love it. Cause it's yeah. like, like, Oh good. They're thinking, they're thinking very logically about. <laughs> right. Yeah. They're like thinking and planning ahead. It's not like this was some really rash thing that was done. They just like took off, not thinking about it. They're like, you know, they went through steps to prepare. Yeah. And it shows what was important to them. The fact that this always happens in all the stories says yeah. something about that. This was probably something that was important to the people that were telling, retelling and hearing these stories. Yeah. That they were like, okay, before you go on a trip, you need to make sure that this family gets taken care of. It doesn't go without saying it needs to be said. (laughs) So anyway, the caliph sat down and he wrote a letter to his brother, Abdalaziz, and to Musa ibn Nasar. Most of the time they just call him Musa in the story. So that's probably what we're going to get the most used to hearing. His name is one of the ones that comes up the most. I'm just trying to help you because there's a lot of names in this story. <laughs> anyway, so I'm following he, so far. Good, good, good. So the Cleve wrote the letter 
just explaining the mission and why they were being sent on this, what he wanted, all of, you know, the logistics. And so then Talib and his group of like men and explorers, they loaded up all the equipment and money that they would need for a long journey like this. And they all set off in the direction of Egypt. And that's just important to note, both geographically and because of what I said before we started, which is that most of these treasure hunts seem to have something to do with like Egypt. When Talib was in Cairo, he met up with the emir Musa. So an emir is a military leader. It's a a commander or general. The way that I understand it, the like my my familiar mm. comparison, it's like a five star general or something. You know, like wow, very yeah, like, high, yeah, up, yeah, way high up, like military leader. Um, so he's this military leader, kind of a big deal. So Talib hands him the letter from the caliph and he reads it over. And he says that while he's willing to go on this quest, he also wasn't quite sure of where this mystical place with an island kingdom of black fishermen was. He was like, um, it is supposed to be closer to where I live, but I've never been there. I've never heard of it. I don't know if I'm the right person to go on this quest because I don't really know where I'm going. And so he called kind of all of his officers together to talk to them about, you know, what's going on and what they think. So one of the officials told Musa that the person who would be able to help them was a, a sheikh. Oh gosh, his name is so long. <laughs> Adab al-Samad ib Adab al-Qadas al-Samudi. Oh my goodness, that is long. <laughs> For the rest of the story, he's called Adab al-Samad. So this sheikh, and I looked up how to pronounce it because I thought it was sheikh, but it's not. It's sheikh. Which I'm like, okay. All right. So... What is a sheikh? It is a religious leader. Okay. So this sheikh, Ab al-Samad, was a really intelligent man, a really experienced traveler who had traveled just extensively all over the deserts and the seas throughout his life. So the officials told him, this definitely sounds like the guy for the job. <laughs> if, if anybody knows how to find it, like this guy will find it. So Musa sent for... Adab al-Samad. And when he came, he turned out to be just this very old man. And if I'm quoting, it says, made decrepit by the passage of time. <laughs> Aren't we all? <laughs> What's funny is like, like when I read that, it's like made decrepit by the passage of time. It's, it's a, such a good choice of words, especially for the story. Like as we get into it, it's like, Wow, a lot of the things in this story are exactly that. And that's kind of like the point. Mm -hmm. And so mm. I really like it. So Adab al-Samad, he told them that the trip would take them two years and some oh. months to get out there. And then the same amount of time to get back. Dang. <laughs> yeah. And he said, you will meet many difficulties and perils as well as coming across strange wonders. Oh yeah. Which it's like, ooh, this is gonna this is gonna be good. So 
Musa agreed to go, and he left his son Haran in charge of the country, and then they left. Which, you don't need to remember the name of his son, it does not come up again. But, like, it's just once again, they, like, made these preparations before they went on this, like, very dangerous and very long journey. Yeah, and I love also how how people are like, oh, it's going to take, like, four years of our life. And they're like, okay, yeah, that's fine. It's like, what? Like, no one is, like, pausing to be like, wait a sec. Yeah. That's insane. Which, like, that... Yeah, which I'm like, it's really interesting because it is like, at that time, anytime you traveled anywhere, it took a very long period of time. And then, like, today, if, like, if you told me, like, oh, yeah, you can go on a trip to, like, Thailand, but it's going to take you two years of journeying to get there... (laughs) It's like, uh, no thanks. Uh, yeah, I'd be like, uh, I kind of have a lot going on at home. Yeah. Like, I, like, uh, I have so much stuff that, like, I'm doing. It is crazy. And uh, it's just, like, an interesting, like, reference point, too. Because someone could be like, oh, I just flew back from Thailand this morning. And I'd be like, oh, yeah. That makes sense. Yeah. Where it's, it's like, like oh, you know, they weren't yeah. even going that far, but it took them forever to get there, you know. And also, yeah. apparently, they're, like, thinking, like, hey, if I go out on this trip, like, it's going to take a long time and I might just die and never come back. So I got to make sure that everything's in order as if I were going to die. Yeah. But like, you know, like you said, making sure the families are taken care of and all that stuff. Yeah. Plus just to have the money to like survive or whatever you needed to do, survive for four years to travel somewhere. It's like, yeah, just like all the like packaging and stuff that you have to take. I mean, this guy's it's going just, on behalf of the Caliph. So, I mean, he's got some fun. Yeah. Now. That's got to yeah, be nice. But again, but again, it's like, he's not going to see his family right. for like four plus years. But it, it reminds me of like, I went to visit somebody in a state where like the cities were kind of small and it like, you know, from city to city, it would take like 20 minutes to drive, like from mm-hmm. city to city. And I had got a hotel that was close. I was going out for uh, this person's wedding. So I got a hotel that was close to where the wedding was going to happen. and. She had asked me the day that we flew in if I wanted to, like, meet up for dinner. And I was like, yeah, that's fine. And she was like, oh, but just so you know, it's, like, 30 minutes from where your hotel is. And to me, I was like, okay. Yeah. Like, that, like 30 minutes, that's no problem. Because the city that I live in, to get to anywhere. <laughs> in the city. Is, in the city, it's like 30 minutes yeah. away. I saw somebody, I saw like a meme that said like Houston is an hour away from Houston. <laughs> <laughs> it's sad and funny, but true. Yeah, because it's like the the traffic is that bad and the, the city is so that huge. massive. Because it's like Houston, the city, it has two airports, two international airports in it. <laughs> yeah, the but they're like city. on opposite yeah. ends of like the city away from each other. And yeah, and so like to me, that, you know, being like, oh, that your house is 20, 30 minutes away from my hotel. That's not a long distance. Yeah. But like to her of like that's... most of the stuff that she does in the town that she lives in, she's always five minutes away from right. everything yeah. that she does. And it's only for a special reason that she would drive out to like a different city 20 yeah. minutes away. And so to me, that just it's like the perspective here, like in this right. story. Yeah. 
Or was it only two years to get up there? It was two years and some months. Right. I don't. I don't know how many is some. I do. But what's funny is when I do the math as I'm like adding it up in the story, it seems like it's a lot shorter actually of a time. So I don't know if their math was wrong or what, but anyway, so after everything is situated and they get all of the food and supplies that they need, they are off walking through the desert. So they travel for four months and after they've been traveling for four months, they see this palace off in a distance. And Adab al-Samad told Musa, quote, there was a lesson to be learned there and kind of like led the group over to the palace. So remember that like Adab al-Samad, he's like a religious, he's like a religious figure and like just a spiritual figure. Right. As as well as, you know, like he's a community leader because of like his like religious orientation and his strong mm-hmm. kind of spiritualness. And so he was like, you know what? There's a lesson to be learned there. And so they headed over to this palace. And as they get closer, they're seeing like it is massive, just opulently. <laughs> Like decorated and just, you know, obviously the biggest, most beautiful palace anyone can ever imagine. Colored marble on the floor and the columns up the staircase. The roof was inlaid with gold, silver, and precious stones. And as they got closer to like the inner chambers of like this palace, they're not seeing anybody. Like, it doesn't look like it's been sitting for, you know, very long. Everything is still very, like, beautiful, but it's empty. They're not, like, seeing anything. Suspicious. Yes, very suspicious. And so as they get closer, they see a sign over this main area um, of the palace, and the sign is written in Greek. And so they call Adab al-Samad over because he can read Greek. And what he reads is... This people and their works lament the empire they have lost. The palace brings the last news of its lords who all lay buried here. Death parted and destroyed them, throwing to the ground what they had gathered in. It is as though they halted here to rest, but then set off again in haste. And so everyone's kind of like, uh, um, what? Yeah. <laughs> and just like really upset because they're like, they're not seeing any signs of anybody and then they're reading this like inscription. Super creepy inscription. Yeah. And so they they move like further into the palace. It says they're just lost in the wonder of the beauty of its construction. That like just everything about it was just like so well crafted and like artistically rendered. But then as they passed a second doorway, again, there is an inscription in Greek. And again, they stopped to read it and it said, How many once alighted in these halls only to leave, and times disasters struck others as well. What they had hoarded was divided up. They left it for others to enjoy and went on their way. What blessings they once had, how much they ate, but they themselves are eaten in the earth. And so they're like, oh gosh, oh gosh, (laughs) like, what is this? 
And Musa a lot in, in these scenes, like throughout the story, he's like moved to tears. Like just like the desolation just really like yeah. is upsetting to him. And it even says the world lost its color for him. He's like very, very moved anytime he's like yeah. seeing this. And he's also taking the time to stop and like write down these inscriptions because he's kind of keeping this intense travel log to mm. like report back later when they're like done with their journey. So yeah. he's like stopping and writing these really sad things like down. So they move further into the palace and when they get to its center, there's this like high domed tower that goes, you know, high up into the sky and it is surrounded by 400 graves. Oh man. And so it's just like, okay, now they finally had found where all the people have gone, where all the people (laughs) went. And again, he's walking around, you know, looking at these tombs. I'm imagining them like stacked up because they talked about how tall the uh, room was, and right. that it was filled with 400 graves. It's like a so mausoleum, like of them, like just walls, like. Yeah, that's what I'm imagining. And apparently on like the front of the marble tombs, on most of them, there was an inscription. I'm just going to read part of it because it's it's really long. <laughs> so it says, in my folly, I was led to sin, to satisfy desire with transient things. So hold a reckoning with yourself, young man, before you have to drink the cup of death. For soon, earth will be sprinkled over you as you lie lifeless in your grave. Oh, boy. And so it's like, oh, we're really getting to it. We're getting to that, like, intensity of, like, like death is coming for us all. Like, don't sin. Don't, like, neglect your religious life with focusing on like frivolous earthly things Mm -hmm. because death comes for us all. So after this, everybody starts like searching around this, this whole palace looking for any sign of life, like any person at all. They're, they're looking around everywhere, just trying to see if they can find anything and Musa and his troops they searched around until they found the burial place of the king so it was this like huge ornate grave and it again had some writing on it and so they went over to (laughs) inspect what you know the king's kind of uh, tombstone said on it it says, you have reached this place. Take note of what you see of the changes and chances of time. Do not be deceived by this world and its fineries, its falseness, its calamities, and its delusive ornaments. It is a guileful and treacherous flatterer whose goods are borrowed and which takes back what it lent from the borrower. It is like the elusive dream of a sleeper or a desert mirage, which the thirsty man takes to be water, and Satan embellishes it for man until the hour of his death. Ooh. like oh dang i'm gonna get that on and my s- tombstone <laughs> that's a lot of <laughs> they charge by the letter oh, buddy man, yeah that's expensive that's why my, mine's just gonna say <laughs> mom <laughs> that's it that's <laughs> just, like i don't know keep it short and sweet um, yeah getting crazy but this would be kind of a long thing for you to have written under <laughs> 
It is like the elusive dream of a sleeper or a desert mirage, which this thirsty man takes to be water <laughs> and Satan and embellishes it for man until the hour of his death. Like, oh, dang. <laughs> Little rich for my blood. Uh, <laughs> so alongside this tomb and what was written on it, there was like more papers that were next to it that were like explaining what had happened Mm -hmm. to this like big mighty kingdom and it gets a little metaphorical in the writing what's talking about but when i look at it what he is describing to me it sounds like a plague or a disease swept through the town because basically what he says is that they had a really nice life. Everyone was living at ease in the palace until they were, quote, visited by the fate decreed for us by the Lord of creation. Mm -hmm. And it says that two people were dying every day until many people had perished. And when the king was watching all of this destruction happen in the land, he said that they were drowning in an ocean of death. And so like, that's really all the description that he goes into. Like what happens Mm -hmm. is just describing this, like two people were dying. Like every day there was this like just wave of death that was like coming over us. And he says that all of the troops that he had, this massive standing army that he had couldn't stop what was coming for them. Yeah. And that all of the money that he had stored up, all of the riches of the kingdom, couldn't stop the death that was coming for them. Which to me, that one hundred percent sounds oh, yeah. like so just like a plague. Sort. Yeah, yeah. Which I'm like, that definitely hits different. Uh-huh. Uh, post or you know, COVID is still ongoing in the world. But yeah, it just like it hits different. Like hearing that of like he basically took his money and said, could this buy me one more day of my life? Yeah. And then, you know, he laments it couldn't. Yeah. Which I'm like, that's yeah. It's like, that's so fascinating that he's like, I had this standing army. They couldn't stop death from coming to me. I had all this money and it could not buy me one more day of life. So yeah, everybody, on this voyage was a little upset yeah, <laughs> by this palace and its contents. They, <laughs> when do we come across the happy fun times palace? <laughs> yeah. Like why couldn't we go to a fun palace? So, uh, which I think it's really interesting that Adab al-Samad had said to them, there's a lesson to be learned here yeah. because it was like, it sets up this, that like this part of the story to be very like, this is might not be something you want to see, but, but it's something to. important yeah. to look at. Yeah. And that's why, you know, this story is said to, you know, feel very phil- philosophical and mm-hmm. a meditation yeah. on like vanity and the things of the world. So anyway, they decided that they were going to leave and <laughs> move on to a next location. Uh, so they traveled out of the palace and that city and they walked for several days through this desert until on the top of a hill they saw a rider made of brass 
carrying a broad-headed spear which gleamed almost blindingly. So they went up to what they thought was a statue, a bronze statue of a person. So when they get up to the top of the hill by this statue, they see that there's an inscription on it that reads, You who come to me, if you do not know the road to the city of brass, rub the rider's hand. It will turn and you must take whichever direction it points to when it stops. Go freely and without fear, for it will lead you to the city. So up until this point, they hadn't been heading to the city of brass. They hadn't heard of the city of brass. They didn't know about this place. There's just this like brass statue on the top of this hill that they just like happened upon. Uh And so, you know, they read the inscription and Musa was like, you know what? Sure. Let's go for it. So he rubs the statue's hand and with lightning speed, it points off into a different direction than the one that they had been traveling. And they decided that they were going to change course and follow this writer to the city of brass. So they started walking off in that direction and they walked for, again, several days until they saw a giant pillar of black stone sticking out of the sand. And this statue was absolutely massive and very distinctive looking. And they described it thusly. They caught sight of a pillar of black stone in which stood a figure stuck up to its armpits. It had two huge wings and four hands, one pair like those of a man and a second pair with claws like lion's paws. The hair on its head was like horses' tails. It had two eyes like burning coals and in the middle of its forehead, a third eye like that of a lynx from which flashed sparks of fire. The figure itself was black and tall And as they got closer to it, it suddenly screamed out, (laughs) Praise be to God who had decreed that I must endure the great affliction of this painful punishment until the day of resurrection. Oh, man. So when it when this like crazy looking statue like screams out, a bunch of Moose's men, they are scared out of their wits and they immediately like turn around and just start running into the desert. (laughs) They're like, whoop, nope, I'm done. I'm done. That's it. (laughs) So Musa himself, he turns to Adab al-Samad and he was like, what is this? And Adab al-Samad was like, I don't know. I have never come here. I've never been here. I don't know like what this is. So Musa asked Adab al-Samad to go and like investigate. But at first he was like, no, 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 I'm not going anywhere near that. (laughs) Like that thing is freaky. And Musa's like, well, the statue, it can't do anything. It can't, it's like, it can't reach you in its condition. It can't move. It can't, all it can do is like scream shout. (laughs) Yeah. So like, yeah, so you're fine. And so Adab al-Samad goes over to the statue and he asks, what is your name? What is and your quest? What, uh, <laughs> what, what is, is the land name? speed velocity that they didn't swallow? Uh, Sorry. No, you're fine. <laughs> it's like same feel, same feel. So we asked him, like, 
what is your name? What are you? What placed you here like this? And the statue spoke and it said, I am an Ifrit of the jinn. My name is Dahish. And I am kept confined here by the might and power of God to undergo torment for as much time as he pleases. And the sheikh then asks him why he's imprisoned in this pillar. And he tells this tale. My story is a strange one, he begins, which is such a great beginning to telling a, a story. So one of the children of Iblis had an idol made of red carnelian, which, if you're like me and you don't know what carnelian is, carnelian is a brownish-red mineral commonly used as a semi-precious gemstone. And it looks kind of cool. One of the things that I thought was interesting about it when I was reading about it is that it was often used during Roman times to make engraved gems for signet or sealing rings because it doesn't stick to wax, which I thought was interesting because we talk about like the seal of Solomon that was in lead. So it probably didn't really work the same way, but I'm like, oh, no, no, no. But Solomon has a signet ring that he uses to seal it. That he uses to seal it. I don't know if it would stick to lead because that's what he was sealing it with then but it says it didn't stick to you know hot wax yeah did you look up who iblis was no is it a real person so when it says like one of the children of iblis iblis is kind of like a complicated character there are a lot of characters that pop up or get mentioned in the thousand and one nights Mm -hmm. that have like kind of like dueling backstories or purposes a lot like like king solomon right I'm guessing that in this story, the connotation is the story of him as a jinn. So he apparently was supposed to be this jinn who at some point was taken as a prisoner by some angels, Mm -hmm. but he was very like pious and devoted to God. And so they actually like elevated his status and like his rank to be an angel. So he was like a jinn angel wow. combo. Interesting. But then because he had this like kind of like dual nature of being like a jinn and an angel, yeah. he kind of started to get like full of himself, a lot of hubris. Uh-huh. And so he then started to like disobey the commands of God because he got, you know, to Full of himself, which is interesting in this story. Yeah. But then in like, in some stories, God sentenced Iblis to hell forever, but then granted him a special favor because he used to be so like pious. He was like, oh, maybe I'll go easy on you. And so he gave him a job to act as like a tempter Mm -hmm. for human beings to test them to see if they would stay loyal to God or if they would leave God. And that was kind of like this job that he was given until like, quote unquote, the day of judgment. Right. After which he would be banished to hell forever. Yeah, probably. Um, That's so interesting. (laughs) And so, yeah, it's interesting that he like gets, it's like this little brief mention in this story. Yes. Specifically because of what we're about to see happen, like in the story, it's kind of like, it's if you're in the know, it's a little like hint of what the story is going to kind of like 
be about. Right. And what do we learn from this, kids? Always look it up because you never know what's going to be super fascinating. I looked up what carnelian was and I thought that was cool. But if I had looked up Iblis, I, my mind would have been blown. So thank you for sharing that. It does add such a different meaning to the story, which is so cool about, again, the knights especially do this a lot. We've talked about it in the story that you've been telling up to this point where they just like mention one little character, one person, which has this whole yeah. other backstory that in one respect adds credibility to it. Like, oh, this character that you know from this other stuff, like Solomon from the all these religious texts or whatever, but also yeah. it's significant thematically to how the story plays out, which is really cool. So one of these angel Jin's babies, who is probably not a baby, but you know what I mean. One of the children of Iblis had this idol that was made of this semi-precious gemstone, which was entrusted to my, the Ifrit telling the stories, care. And this idol was worshipped by this great and important sea king. And so this sea king, again, being great and important, had an army of jinn. It says a million jinn. And they would answer his summons whenever he wanted, do whatever he wanted them to do. And so these jinn that were serving the sea king were under my command and they were obedient to my orders. And they all rebelled against Solomon, not just Solomon, but the authority of Solomon, son of David. So they were like the exact ghost that Solomon was trying to bust. <laughs> So what I would do is I would enter into the middle of the statue, this idol that was created, and I would give my commands from there. And it just so happened that the king's daughter loved this statue, and she was always, you know, going and kneeling down before it and worshiping it, praying to it. And let me tell you, this lady was the loveliest lady of her time. She was beautiful. She was graceful. She was radiantly perfect he says so basically this ifrit has like a huge crush on the king's daughter and solomon had heard all about this lady and had sent a message to her father and he was like hey it's me king solomon why don't you give me your daughter in marriage smash that carnelian idol that is just a complete blasphemy before god and bear your testimony that there is no other God than the true God and that I, Solomon, am his prophet. If you do, we can kind of share our wealth, be partners. But if you refuse, I'm going to bring some armies against you and you're going to go down because my armies are hecka strong. And King Solomon continues saying, you're going to have to prepare to answer to God because my armies are going to he puts it very poetically and says, like, they're going to fill every open space and leave you as a figure of the dead past. But basically, he's like, my army's so big, they're going to go through everything and just leave you all for dead. They're going to crush you. And so when Solomon's measure arrived, the king was, like, extremely prideful and just very full of himself, very cocky. And... Didn't really seem bothered by, I guess, what King Solomon had said. And he's like, asked his viewers, like, hey, what do you guys think about this message? Huh? I was like, what do you think about his request to marry my daughter? And he wants me to destroy this idol and he wants me to adopt his religion. So the viziers answered him. They're like, oh, my great king, like, how could King Solomon even attack you? Look, we're in the middle of the sea. How's he going to get across this great sea? Even if he does, 
He'll not, he's not going to defeat us. You've got this huge army of jinn, a million jinn that are going to fight for you. And on top of that, we've got this idol. And if you just pray to it and you ask it for victory, like it will grant you victory. So the best thing that you can do is to consult the idol and listen to what it says, what it thinks that you should do. If it says you should fight Solomon, then you should do it. But if it doesn't, then you shouldn't. And so hearing that, the king's like, okay, goes to the idol offers sacrifices and killing sacrificial victims, which I'm like, they kind of just gloss over that. Like, who are these victims? What is he killing? I want to know, but it doesn't tell me. Nope. And so he like bows down before peasants. (laughs) They should have thought about that before they became peasants. Oh yeah. I should have thought about that before I became a peasant. That was a bad choice. So he kneels before the idol and starts crying shedding tears before it which i was like okay and he says my lord i know your power but solomon wants me to smash you so i want you to tell me what i should do command me and i shall obey so at this point the ifrit who's telling the story turns to the people and he's like okay so like in my ignorance I made a mistake. I didn't care for Solomon. So I went into the idol and replied to the king. And I said, Solomon Shmoloman. I don't care. I don't fear him. (laughs) I am all powerful. If he wants to fight me, bring him on. And I'm going to snatch away his soul. And so when the king heard this answer from what he thought was the idol, but was actually just this Ifrit, his confidence was strengthened. And he's like, all right, we're going to fight. Solomon's gonna die today or when he gets here to fight because it's gonna probably take months for them to travel across the sea or whatever so he goes back to Solomon's messenger and apparently just like gives him a beating and replies with this message and he's like you're guilty of wishful thinking Solomon uh or Solomon's messenger you go back and tell this to him it's like are you threatening me with these words you come to me or I'm gonna go to you so basically bring it on Name the time, name the place. We will fight. (laughs) Meet me in the parking lot after school by the flagpole. So Solomon's messenger goes back to Solomon, tells him everything, and Solomon is pissed. And so, you know, it goes on to talk about, like, he orders this vizier to gather, like, and this vizier happens to be the king of the jinn to gather his, like, jinn army together. He tells this other leader to gather 600,000 devils. And then he tells this other guy to gather a force of men. And he's like, we're going to go and beat the crap out of this sea king. And so he gave them equipment. He gave them weapons and they all got on his flying carpet and birds flying overhead, beasts following below headed off to the sea king's place. And it, when it says he and the jinn and men mounted his flying carpet, I'm like, like all like 600,000, Like, this is a gigantic carpet. Yeah. This massive, I'm like, just imagining that, like, imagery of, like, them climbing onto this. And he's, like, millions of men, thousands of devils, all this stuff. And they, like, climb onto, not to mention, like, Ifrit, Jin, like, they're massive. Yeah. And they climb onto this, like, must be miles long carpet. And it lifts into the air. And you've got these 
birds that are flying overhead and below them in the shade, you've got these beasts that yeah. are like galloping, moving towards this kingdom to attack. I'm like, a- the visual <laughs> image of that is like mind blowing. Somebody needs to draw that. If you have artistic ability, draw that and send it to us because I want to see it. And so they fly on this carpet to the Sea King's Island and they just like fill the island with this, all these armies. And so once King Solomon kind of surrounded the entire island, he sends another messenger to the king and he's like, you wanted me to come? I'm here. So either defend yourself against my attack or acknowledge that I'm God's messenger, smash your idol, worship the one true God, and give me your daughter to marry. <laughs> Which is like, man, this guy's going through quite a bit to get a lovely daughter to be his bride. Well, I was going to say, like, it's interesting because, like, one, it is, like, about that woman, but it's also then a story about... The pride of like, the seeking. Re- or, or, like, renouncing false gods. Right. And claiming, like, there is no god but God. Right. The one true God. And... So, yeah, like, it becomes about more stuff. But, yeah, it's being propelled by this want for a woman, which is interesting because in the Bible, that is what was the the downfall of King Solomon yeah. was his lust for women. Right. And so, like, King Solomon goes on to say, like, and I want you and all your people to recite this exact phrase. I confess that there is no God but God and that Solomon, me, is the prophet of God. If you do that, you'll be safe. If you refuse, get ready to die. And he even talks about, he's like, you know, God commanded the wind to obey me and to carry me and this carpet to you so that I can make an example of you for worshiping these false idols, essentially. So when Solomon's messenger brought the message to the king, the king said, we're not going to do that, buddy. Tell him I'm going to fight him. The messenger goes back. Gives the reply. It's so sad because he's filled with so much false confidence. Yeah. Because this Ifrit was like giving him a, yeah. like a prank, basically playing a prank on him. It was an episode of Practical Jokers and the king didn't know. Or like, like he himself underestimated Solomon and his armies and. Right. Yeah. Like it's. He was pretty, like he was pretty confident before. Anyway, but then it was like he went to the thing and was like, so yeah. So the messenger goes back to Solomon to give that reply. Meanwhile, the king is summoning all of his people, the million jinn that he has, and he's adding, you know, some other jinn and some devils from all around, like the islands and the mountaintops, armors them up, starts distributing weapons, and gets ready to fight. Meanwhile, God's prophet Solomon is doing the same thing, getting his, you know, army in their strategic position getting the beasts on one side getting the men on the other they're kind of strategically planning stuff they're getting the birds to patrol the island and so when they start the attack the birds are going to come down and like peck out the eyes of the enemies and do all sorts of stuff and so when solomon's giving all these commands out they're like to hear is to obey for we owe obedience to god and to you prophet of god and so basically a lot of this is going well out of the way to say like we listen to you because we recognize that you are God's prophet and God is doing all this stuff. It's not you Solomon, but because you are a messenger of God, that's why we do it. Yeah. 
And so Solomon sets himself up on this big marble throne studded with gems, plated with red gold. He's got his entourage of leaders of men and jinn and devils all around him. And they launched the attack. And they fought for two days on this huge battlefield of this whole island. And there's just like wreaking havoc. Everyone's dying. The third day says God's judgment came upon us. This is the Ephraim again, who's kind of on the side of the king. He's like, God's judgment came upon us. I was the first one to go out against Solomon with my troops. Again, I was the leader of those million jinn. And I told them to hold their positions. And I went out to challenge their leader. But this guy, Al-Dimriat, who was the king of the jinn on you know King Solomon's side. And when he came out to meet me, he met me like a huge mountain with blazing flames, billowing smoke. And he shot me with a fiery meteor. And this was way stronger than the fire that I had against him. And like he was screaming so loud that I thought the sky fell down on me and the mountains around me, they were just shaking with the power of his voice. And so at his command, they launched a single charge against us, fire and smoke rising high. So his hearts were almost splitting and the fighting became furious. And I was like, dang, I thought it was bad before, but this third day, they really kicked it up a notch. And just as... They said, the birds started attacking us from the air. The beasts were getting us from the ground. I was dueling with this huge mountain of a jinn, Al-Dimriat, until we tired each other out. But I was so weakened, my troops deserted me, and they just, like, took off the ones that had survived. And at that, Solomon, God's prophet, cried out, seize this great tyrant, talking about the king, and at that, like all of his men start attacking the men on the opposite side, the jinn fighting the jinn on the other side. Our king was defeated. Solomon, his troops overtook ours. They started ransacking our treasures, taking it for their own. The beasts were going around. The birds were coming down. It says tearing out eyes, sometimes with their talons, sometimes with their beaks. They were using their wings to slap men in the face. So these birds were really laying it into these guys. The beast went through and just tore our horses apart. They say they also tore at men until most of us were stretched on the ground like fallen palm trunks. And he's like, as for me, I ran away from Aldimria as fast as I could. But he followed me over the distance of a three-month journey until I fell into the situation in which you find me here, imprisoned in this column. What I love is they basically, this this gin, like, Basically, this Ephraim gets to, like, the end of his story of, like, and now I'm imprisoned, you know, in this statue. And then the reaction of Musa and all of his companions is, do you know the way to the city of brass? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, anyway. <laughs> I just thought they like, anyway. <laughs> Big yikes. <laughs> he tells them this whole epic tale. I mean, that's an awesome story. But it is. Like, it is an awesome story of like yet another like fallen empire. Because of their pride and hubris and their unwillingness to worship the one true God. Yep. And there's that religious yeah. uh stuff. I thought it was like the very religious like uh themes and tones. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. Musa and all of his, you know, traveling party, they asked, 
this Ifrit, if he knew the way to the city of brass that they had just learned about, you know, from that brass statue that had pointed them his way. Um, and he explained to them how to get to the city of brass and they continued on in their journey. And again, they're like going off course from where they were trying to get to originally, because now they're interested in the city of brass. So. Because I, where were they trying to get to originally again? I thought they were supposed to just get a bottle that had a gin inside of it. So they're trying to get to that. That um, island. It's like an, the African an island, island kingdom with this like African people. Yeah. Yeah. To, to look in this ocean for these bottles to right. bring back to the king. But now they're getting, yeah, a little a little off track on this, like, treasure hunt. I think I read a quote at the beginning that said that, like, this story is a quest within a quest. Right. Because, yeah, this is them getting kind of, like, off off track a little bit. They're going off and, like, this... focusing on the side quests a little bit before they go back to the main storyline of the video game of, like, okay, now we got to reach the objective and take it back to the Caliph. Exactly. Except they're not meeting any like mini bosses or big <laughs> bosses. They're basically just like finding really sad poems. Yeah. <laughs> That's all they're doing is just that'd be quite the video game. <laughs> <laughs> anyway. So the city of brass they have learned is supposed to have 25 giant gates. And so they wander over to where they think that the city of brass is supposed to be. And what they see, they find this wall of fortification that it they say it looks like iron poured into a mold of a mountain ridge. So it's just a no gates, just this like massive wall. And it looks like maybe it's been partially on the outside, like buried by sand. And that's why they can't see any gates. Mm -hmm. So Talib, who we haven't heard from for a while, but is on this trip. He was the guy who had originally told the story to the king right. about these like bottles. So Talib orders several of the troops that were with them to take some horses and to go around the perimeter of this city to see if along the perimeter there are gates anywhere and then to come back and report as to, like, if they found any gates or not. Mm -hmm. And so the riders took off and they were gone for three days <laughs> before they basically came back around the other side. Wow. So that's, like, how massive this thing is talking about. So then they're like, oh, Wow. If this thing is that massive, like, you know, what, what are we going to do? What's another strategy that we can choose? So Musa Talib and Ab al-Samad climbed up a mountain that was opposite the city and they looked down into it. And when they reached the summit and they looked down, they said the city was as large as any of the I had ever seen. They could see lofty palaces, splendid domes, well-maintained houses, flowing streams, trees and gardens with ripe fruit. But they can't see any human life from way up high. They can't see anything that's like moving in there. They said they could hear owls hooting. There were birds that were circling around, crows inside, but like that was the only life were all of these birds when they looked down into it. 
And then, I mean, he says some religious stuff that's neither here nor there for the purpose of the story. (laughs) So while they are up there on the mountain, they look over and they see seven tablets of white marble that are gleaming off in the distance. And so they head over to those to see if there's anything written on them that could give them like any clue as to what is going on. So when they get to them, they're written in Greek. So, of course... Adab al-Samad is the one who reads them, and I'm just going to read portions of them, not all seven of them to you. (laughs) So the first one, in part, says, Where are those who ruled the land, subdued mankind, and commanded armies? By God, they were visited by the destroyer of delights and the parter of companions, which brought them from their spacious palaces to the narrow tomb. And then right at the bottom, it says, at the foot of the tablet, there were more lines inscribed. Once they were wealthy, but now they are dried bones. I want that written on my tombstone. (laughs) First step, I need to get wealthy. (laughs) So that they can write once she was wealthy, but now she is dried bones. Get rich and then die trying. Yeah. Instead of it being like, she was poor, and now she's dried bones. <laughs> that, that's kind of a bummer. <laughs> so then they went on to another one of them. The line that stood out to me was, the buildings they had raised were of no service to them, and what they had gathered and prepared did not protect them. So then this one's written at the bottom of the fourth tablet. Do not be deceived by the enjoyment that is given you by your days, nights, and hours as they pass unheeded. Know that death is lying in wait for you and mounting on your shoulder. Like, ooh, these aren't these aren't fun inscriptions. It's not the type of thing the- you read in a fortune cookie, I'll tell you that. <laughs> so, you know, they they read all of these tablets that they saw, all these, you know, really kind of dire warnings not warnings about what's in the city but more about like warnings about how to live your life yeah about how to like live your life right so they all kind of like get together at the bottom uh outside of what you know was supposed to be like the city gates and they're kind of like okay how are we going to get in how are we going to get into this city how are we going to investigate further of like what's going on And somebody comes up with the idea to get everybody who knows how to do any kind of carpentry or construction together to build a massive ladder. And so basically, Adab al-Samad says like a prayer that that and they call on like the power of God to help them as they construct this so that they can get this done. Because in this story, it's very important that like, you know, the, it's God's hand that's kind of leading the way like the whole time. Yeah. And so that's what they do. They find some really tall, like really long pieces of timber and they make a ladder that has iron rungs on it. And so this massive construction project is underway. They build up this ladder. They spent an entire month working on it. And when it's completed, they all work together to raise this ladder all the way up to the full height. They don't say anything about going down on the other side. <laughs> uh-uh. <laughs> it's funny you should scream that. 
So, <laughs> so after they get that like raised up, they ask, okay, who wants to be a scout? Who wants to go to the top and kind of investigate, like, you know, looking down, like into the city, like close by who wants to do that? So somebody volunteers in the group, they wish him good fortune. He climbed up to the top of the ladder And when he got to the top, he stood on the wall and he gazed down into the city. And then they saw him clap his hands and call out in a loud voice, oh, how beautiful you are. And then he leapt. And they waited and then they heard the sound. Oh, man. Of him hit the ground. And they are all in shock. Like of what they just saw. And they're like, why would he have done that? Because like he was a sensible man when he walked up. What made him do something so awful when he got to the top and like, like, and and so exuberantly, they were so like shocked. Right. Ever saying like, you're so beautiful. Like the beauty of the city made him want to like jump to it as fast as he could. That's what I, that's what I thought when I, first read that too i was like because of how beautiful the city is is that like what's going on so musa immediately when he's like i don't know why he did that that was messed up that he did that i there's there i can't think of like why he would do that i'm afraid to send anybody up we've tried it's not happening we're not getting into the city let's go there's nothing in this city that we need that's an exact quote from him in the story is <laughs> let us go for there's nothing in the city that we need. They're like, guys like, no, but somebody in the crowd like disagreed and was like, Hey, you know what? Like I I'm of sounder mind than that guy. Like, I think I'll be fine. And they're kind of like, no, I don't, you know, there's this argument of like, I, I think we should just leave. But you know, a volunteer was like, no, I want to try. So a second volunteer goes up. Exact same thing happens. Oh, man. And Musa is like, I don't want us to do this anymore. This is like awful. But people kept volunteering to go. So a third person, a fourth person, a fifth person, until they got to 12 people who had gone up and jumped. And Musa was like, we're okay. Like, stop. We are done. Like, obviously, this isn't working and we need to stop. Because, like, I don't want us to just be out here until all of us jump. This is, like, madness. So Adab al-Samad, he basically was like, no one else should go up anymore except me. I'm an experienced old man. I've seen a lot of stuff. I've, you know, been in tough, difficult situations before. Like, I'm a really experienced man. I should be the one that should go up. And Musa is like, no, you should not do that. I'm not going to let you climb up to the wall because if you die, that'll be the death of all of us. You're our guide. You're like, you're the person who is supposed to like lead us to the place we're going. We don't want to lose you. None of us would survive if you died. And he was like, I know that I will only be able to succeed in what I'm about to do if it is the will of almighty God. So right before he starts to climb up, he calls out in the name of God, the compassionate, the merciful. And then he starts climbing up. And the whole time he's climbing, he is calling on the name of God. He's reciting the verses of deliverance that are in the Quran. And when he got to the top of the wall, he clapped his hands and he stared down. And everybody got 
super nervous. <laughs> and so they start crying out, don't do it. Don't throw yourself down. <laughs> and so they started to all recite the verses of deliverance and to like call on God. Cause they're basically like, if he falls like, that's it. We're all dead. Yeah. And so then Adab al-Samad, he like turns around and he's got a smile on his face. He's laughing. He's like, thank you all. You have saved me. I'm in no danger now. Thank you for calling out to God. My eyes can see now. I was protected from Satan and his deceitful lies. And so Musa like calls out. He's like, what What have you seen? And Adab al-Samad said, when I got to the top of the wall, I looked down and I saw three girls as lovely as moons who were calling out to me. And they were like demons in actuality. Uh Like they were demons and they were making the ground look like it was made of water. And that Uh if he were to leap down into it, he would fall chest into like a pool of water and be safe. But then once they started to, like, recite that, he looked down and all he could see was, like, the bodies of his companions who had jumped before him. Um, Yeah. So he said, there is no doubt that this was a spell produced by the people of the city to keep away anyone who wanted to look at it or get into it. And as a result, our companions are lying here dead. So there's, like, a booby trap. For everybody. But this one was like one that was set by like magic. Right. So he traveled along the top of the wall until he came to two uh, towers that were inside of the gate. And when he looked at the middle of the gate, there was a brass image of a writer. So just like the brass writer that Mm. had been outside. Now he's seeing it like on a imprint like that's placed into this, the middle of this gate and underneath there was an inscription that read rub the nail and the writer's navel 12 times and the gate will open. And so he does that. He like <laughs> rubs the navel. Of the right. It's so weird. Um, <laughs> are you an Audi or an innie? <laughs> So, yeah, he does exactly that. He rubs the navel of the image of that writer 12 times, and then the gates open. It says, like, the sound of thunder. Boom. That's my imitation of thunder. <laughs> so after those doors opened, the the people who were on the outside then could, like, move in, and they're walking along inside of this city now, and... They are seeing dead bodies everywhere. When they walk through kind of like the market area of this city, there are people that are like sitting with opulent wealth like all around them. Mm -hmm. But they're lying there dead. Everybody looks like they just sat down at their job for the day and then died. And so, you know, they're just going place by place by place looking around and there are like dead guards that are passed out in front of like the palace and the doors are locked. And Adab al-Samad was like, you know what, I bet one of these guards has the keys. So they're, you know, rifling through the pockets of these dead bodies, Mm -hmm. like looking for like these keys. And they go to who looks like the oldest person among them and 
inside where of his like clothes were the keys to the gate. So they open it up and they go inside the palace. One thing that's like, I, that I found really interesting was it like in the writing of the story, like, again, it says a lesson for those who could learn, like, that's what it like described like the scene mm-hmm. as, which it's interesting because this time it's not Adab al Samad who's saying it to a person in the story. This time it's the story saying it to the readers. Right. That like this is a lesson for those who could learn. And so they're just, you know, moving about this like palace searching for like and moving about the city, looking for signs of like what in the world like happened. Um, it said that like some of the people that they were looking at, they might have seemed to the ignorant to be sleeping, but they were dead, having met their fate through famine. Mm. And so which they talk like that's just what it says, like in that little part of like the story. But when they right. as they go further on, it like kind of reiterates that point. So they get outside of this like beautiful room and above the doorway. Of course, another inscription, and it says, From highest rank they were brought down to the lowliest of a narrow grave, a wretched fall. For many days they ate and drank their wine, but after their fine foods, they too were eaten. You know, so again, kind of a bummer. Mm -hmm. So they're looking around this room, and again, obviously, complete opulence, beautiful things. There's even, uh, like fountains inside of this like gorgeous room streams that were like flowing through it and just you know the most beautiful objects in the world that they had ever seen embroidered silk curtains just like precious gems chests that were filled with like gold white silver pearls sapphire precious stones all of these things just like this was obviously like a very rich and wealthy empire. And so as they're looking around, they suddenly are startled because there is a woman who is like lounging on this couch and her eyes are open and they're sparkling looking like they're alive. Like they're alive. Yeah. And you know, so they're really like startled and like they're looking at she's they're like oh she's really lovely and they're kind of talking to her like a little bit of being like oh we're so sorry like we didn't and then they realize we didn't think there were any living people here yeah it said when musa saw her he was amazed and taken aback by her beauty the redness of her cheeks and the blackness of her hair while those who looked at her thought that she could not be a corpse but must be alive they greeted her and Talib called down a blessing on the emir and said, please understand that she is dead and lifeless, so is unable to return your greeting. So he noticed, like, um, mm-hmm. she can't hear you. She is a dead body. Oh, and they're right. like, they're like, but her eyes. And Talib is like, she is no more than an artfully preserved shell. And then he says her eyes were removed after death and given a backing of quicksilver before being put back into place. And that was like... Oh. Why they gleamed, which I'm like, yeah, that's fascinating. Like, so they looked down and they saw like sitting in front of her where were like two slaves that 
had died, obviously. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but their job had been to protect her. They were both holding weapons. Um, and between them, there was a golden tablet that had words written on it, of course. And I'm just going to try. It's long, so I'm going to just give like main portions of it. So it basically starts off by saying, like, son of men, do you not know that death has summoned you and is coming quickly to take your life? Be prepared to leave and take provisions from this world, which you are soon to abandon. And it becomes clear that those provisions that she's talking about are ones of the soul, not like mm-hmm. like items. But she asks these questions that are interesting for later because it says, where is Adam, the father of mankind? Where is Noah and where are his descendants? Where are the Amalekites and where are the mighty monarchs? Their palaces stand empty and they have left their family and their lands. They all died and are now dried bones and all the lords of rank are gone. And so, like, basically it's talking about, like, even these great people, even these, like, people that were massively important throughout, like, history, like, even spiritual history, like, they're gone. They're dead. They're not here, Mm -hmm. like, anymore. But the question, where is Noah and where are his descendants, is very interesting inside of this story, and we will get to that. So... She talks about, like, I long enjoyed a life of pleasure and ease until fate struck and I was overcome by a disaster. For seven consecutive years, no drop of rain fell and no grass grew on the surface of the land. And she goes on to explain that basically, like, what happened to them is, like, as a kingdom, they were very, very, like, wealthy, well-situated. They had lots of material objects that, you know, are symbols of, like, wealth and beauty. Mm-hmm. Uh, like, just, like, finest materials, artwork, tapestries, just all this, like, really, really rich stuff. But then when this famine came to the land, when, like, they didn't have any, like, rain, it did not matter. Even when they would send out their troops with, like, baskets and baskets of gold and precious items, when they would go out asking anybody, like, would you trade, like, a loaf of bread for all of this, the people were like, no, I don't need that because you can't eat gold. Mm -hmm. Like... They so it didn't matter how much stuff they had like accumulated because they didn't have what really mattered for life, which again, this it's metaphorical as well. I mean, right. it works logistically yeah. as well because yeah, like you with for a basket of during a famine, if you have a basket of gold, no one's gonna give you your bread for that because yeah. their bread is what's keeping them alive. Your gold is worthless. Mm-hmm. So kind of like after learning all this, reading all about this, Musa is like overcome with grief and sadness of like what he is hearing. I mean, this is coming off of like (laughs) a very long journey of like hearing these like really like heavy, depressing things, seeing these like kingdoms laid waste. And so Adab al-Samad says to him as he's like, crying death is the clearest truth the certain promise and the end to which we must return learn your lesson from those who have preceded you to the grave and outstripped you on their way to the next world do you not see that your gray hairs have summoned you to the grave bringing you news of your death it's like Mm, that's that heavy stuff to like contemplate that it's like, if you look around you, you're constantly reminded of your own mortality. And that's important. Being reminded of your own mortality is important for you to like live a life of like meaning. 
So they're kind of trying to gather themselves. This It's like very upsetting. Another, you know, like seeing this death. But they start like looking around at like all of this wealth that they've found. And they're like, you know what? Like we could get saddlebags and we can like take some of these riches back. Yeah. We can either take them with us to the kingdom that we're about to see as like gifts or we'll be able to take them back. Maybe we should like gather up these things. And they found like in some of the writing that this woman had left, it says, you whom God has enabled to enter our city, take what you can of our wealth, but do not touch anything that has been placed on my body to cover my nakedness and to equip me on my journey from this world. Fear God and do not remove any of this lest it bring upon you death. This is my advice and the charge that I lay on you. So they're like, okay, we're allowed, you know, to take (laughs) this wealth. Like she's said, you know, if you have some use for it, like take this. So they kind of start gathering up their things and Talib looks down and he's like, are we to leave this treasure and these jewels just because of these words? What can she do with them now that she's dead? These are worldly decorations to adorn the living while a cotton robe will do to cover the girl. And we have a better right to the rest. So he started to approach her and to walk up the steps to take the jewels and the dress and, you know, all the stuff that this corpse had on her. And the two guards that had been placed there stood up and they struck him in the back and the other one chopped off his head with a single blow. Oh, my gosh. (laughs) And Musa exclaims, because, again, this is Talib. This is the guy who... had started them like off on like this whole journey and now he's just had his head chopped off and musa exclaims there is wealth and plenty here but avarice exposes the greedy to reproach and it's like he wanted too much Mm -hmm. when it was like did we not just learn about how like having all of this isn't really worth anything. And then immediately Talib is like, okay, but she doesn't need it because she's dead, right? But I'm yeah. alive, so I want it. And it's like, but the la- she told you no. <laughs> yeah. And like warned you. It, like, again, booby traps. Like, yeah. yeah. Like, come on. <sighs> anyway. That was one of those things that I was thinking too and they're like, when you were saying, they're like, should we take this wealth or not? And there's like, on one hand, these people are all dead and they don't need it and we could definitely use it. But on the other hand, it feels like we're not really learning the lesson of this entire journey we've been on if we're <laughs> going yeah, like, to put all, so much importance on this wealth. So it was interesting that she did say like, no, take what you need except for this stuff. But then still somebody's got to yeah. press that boundary, test it out. Yeah, be like, oh, but really, I mean, do we really have to listen to the like requests of the dead? They're dead. Does it really matter? Apparently, that's yes. another question. I'm like, that's another question that people are still contemplating is like, yeah. how far do we take the request of somebody who's died? But I mean, if they've got magical swords, people who are going to chop off your head, I guess you take it a little more seriously. Mm-hmm. So I don't know. Lesson for all of us. <laughs> if your if your loved one has magical swords, people will chop off your head if you don't abide by their dying wish. Maybe you should listen. If not, for real, it's a gray area. so they gathered up the body of talib and those who had jumped 
And they took the time to bury their bodies, give them like a proper burial in the city of Brass. And they gathered up their things and they started back along the coast where they were supposed to be before they had started on this quest for the city of Brass. And they came to a high mountain that was overlooking the sea and there were many caves along it. And that's when they knew they had arrived because inside of like these caves were the homes and dwellings of these fishermen of this kingdom by the sea. And when Musa and his men saw, you know, these people like running back like towards their caves when, you know, they saw them coming, Musa asked Adab al-Samad, who are these people? And Adab al-Samad was like, these are the people that we have been hunting for. These are the people who we've been questing for like this whole time. So the king came out to them because, again, he knew Arabic, mm-hmm. just like Talib's informant had said. And so he came out, and when he reached Musa, they exchanged greetings, and they treated each other very respectfully. And the king asked Musa whether they were humans or were they jinn. And Musa was like, we are humans, but you are the one that lives alone here on the mountains, and you're like very like large, big people, you must be Jinn. And the king was like, no, we're not Jinn, we're humans. We're descendants of Ham, the son of Noah. (laughs) There we go. Yep, on whom be peace. (laughs) And Musa asked, how do you know about religion when no prophet has brought you the divine revelation in a land like this? And the king explained that they had been visited by people who had taught them about Muhammad, the prophet. So now, you know, they knew about Muhammad. They knew that there was no God but God and Muhammad, the prophet. So they all kind of were happy together. And I thought that was very interesting just because, you know, this person asked, like, like all of these empires have risen and fallen. Like where is Noah and where are his descendants? And it's like, there's actually some of his descendants that like live nearby and they have, they live very humble lives, but they're very in touch spiritually with what they're supposed to do. And so their kingdom, even though, as we heard at the beginning of the story, predates the known religion or whatever, they had said mm-hmm. like, oh yeah, we, you know, we, we practice something that's like older. We haven't heard about like anything else, but we're still very like spiritual and righteous because they're that focused and they are humble people. Their kingdom still exists and mm. like they're fine. So I think that's like really fascinating. So the king asked them like, what are you guys doing here? Like, <laughs> what do you need? Why are you here? What's going on? And so Musa told him that they were companions of the ruler of Islam, you know, the caliph, and that they had come because they had heard about these brass bottles that were in this sea that had the ifrits, the marids, you know, the the jinn that were like trapped inside of them, imprisoned by Solomon, and that the caliph had told them to fetch them so that he could look at them himself and and witness the power of King Solomon through like these like bottles. And the king was like, oh, of course, you know, we've got plenty of those. Like we can definitely like, we can round up a bunch for you guys. Like we're lousy with bottles out here. <laughs> um, and so he was like, while we're gathering up like these bottles and stuff, like, please let us like feed you. Let us like entertain you. So 
And this part is so fascinating to me. He makes them a meal of fish and he orders divers to go and look for these bottles um, from Solomon. And while they're gone collecting those, the king was also like, oh, I've got some other like really wonderful things that you can have that we'd like want to show you. While we're feasting, let us feed you like this local delicacy that we had. And he presented Musa with, it says, some extraordinary sea creatures that looked like humans. (laughs) Oh, man. And for three days of the stay, they ate exclusively these sea creatures that looked like humans. And I'm like, Julnar? (laughs) Oh, no. Yeah. Because, like, she looks like a human. Yeah, it's the same universe. Yeah, so it's, like... Disturbing. They, like, caught some of these people, these, like, mermaids that looked like Julnar of the Sea that probably came from her kingdom. And then they cooked them and ate them, and they are apparently, like, very delicious. Apparently. Soft and tender. Wonderful. So much so that... Musa was like, is there any way that we can bring some of these back to like our king so that he can try like eating them? Do you think this will still be good in two and a half years after our journey back across the sands? Like, there's no way. No, Unless I live you made, in a, like jerky out of it. I live in a desert. Let me tell you, uh, like seafood does not travel well through. <laughs> Even with modern refrigeration technology, we just know you don't eat seafood. Yeah. When you're not near the sea. Yeah, you just, that's just, it's you don't. Yeah, no. So anyway, they gather up a lot of, you know, these gifts. They gave some of the gifts from the city of Brass to this king. The king gave them some, you know, like different valuable things, including 12 of these bottles to give to the caliph. And they then started on their journey back. And it does not say if it took them that two and a half years to get all the way back because, you know, I guess nothing of note happened. And so it was rather <laughs> quick in the story as it's written. They're like, no more side quests. No They're more side quests. just depressing. Yep, they just go back. They're like, nope, we've had enough. So when they get to the caliph, they show him all that they had gathered. They tell him everything they'd seen. And Musa read him the poems and the inscriptions that they had read along the way from all of these different palaces. And the Cleef said, I wish that I had been with you so as to have seen what you saw. And then he took the bottles and it seems like he gathered other people around so that they could also see him like <laughs> open them up. And so he opened them up so that he could watch them. The, the like Jid come out and say, I repent prophet of God and I shall never be disobedient again. And then like fly away. And it says, and this is a very sad little side note. As for the mermaids on whose flesh the king had entertained them, wooden troughs were made for them, which were filled with water and into which they were put. Mm. But the heat was too much for them, and they died. <laughs> oh, they were living? They were living, apparently, the they whole time to... that they were trekking them through. Right, so they tried to bring, like, living ones back so that they could eat them fresh. That's, yeah. Oh, man, so but many then they, things about Yeah, that then I they died because like. it was too hot. I know, I was like, I hate this side, side note. <laughs> so after the king saw these bottles and their content, he was filled with amazement. 
And the other treasures were collected and they were distributed among his people. And Musa then decided after this long trip that he went on to leave his son Haran in charge of the city. And he went to Jerusalem because he wanted to devote his life to worshiping God. And Musa set off to Jerusalem and that's where he spent the rest of his life and where he died. This is the end of the complete account of the city of brass as it has reached us. God mm. knows better. <laughs> I'm like, Burr. wow. So like, yeah, just this again, it's like an epic quest, but also very like, Oh, kind of a downer. So there's lots of different elements that I want to talk about. Like <laughs> in this story, um, I think the first of which that I want to talk about is the flying carpet. Yeah. Cause this is, this is the first story. Cause it's like, we've saw some elements repeated that we've seen before. Like, yeah. Jin Solomon, even like, you know, cities in the middle of the desert that have all the splendid, like wealth right. and yeah. mermaids we've seen before. But this is the first time we've seen a flying carpet, which is something that people think of like, with the Arabian Nights. Yeah, it is as like very emblematic of, or, you know, it's, there's strong association there. When you think of like thousand one nights, you're like, Oh yeah. Flying carpets, genies, stuff like that. Yeah. That's what I read somebody. I can't remember. I think that it was Marina Warner who basically said something along the lines of like, when you think of Cinderella or when you think of like fairy tales, like European fairy tales, the images that come to mind are like glass slippers and, yeah. you know, these like tall towers, long hair. You know, like there are certain images that you think about just automatically when you think of European fairy tales, when you hear the word mm -hmm. fairy tale. And when you hear the Thousand and One Nights, one of the first things that you think of are flying carpets. Yeah. And when you think about it a little more, you realize that, you know, one of the only places that you can think of that has a flying carpet is the story of Aladdin, which we know is an orphan tale. Right. But there are other stories that have this like flying carpet as just a tiny little like piece, which is funny because it is like something that is so like emblematic and that like yeah. people just it's iconic is what it is. Yeah. It's like something oh, yeah. that people can like. Be like, oh, yeah, Thousand One Nights, flying carpets. But it does, like, capture the imagination really well in this story, too, where it's, like, you think of a flying carpet, you think of an actual carpet or, like, a rug that you see, like, in a house. Whereas yeah. the one in this story was, like we mentioned, miles long because it had to fit 600,000 men, millions of gin. Yeah. You know, like, just endless amounts of people and creatures on it. And then I, so I was really happy when you actually like read verbatim this like one line that was in there talking about the carpet specifically. It said, God, the blessed and exalted has commanded the wind to obey me and to carry me to you on this carpet. So what's really interesting about that is a lot of stories that include flying in them. It's usually by the power of like, you know, either a djinn carrying them or a giant bird. There's like mm. something that is carrying them. But when it comes to this carpet, it's not flying on its own power. It's being held up by the force of the air. 
Which is interesting because that is how airplanes are held up in the air. Oh yeah. The forward motion and the force of the air, it like it's like, oh nope, that's how things fly. So it's interesting because Solomon had um in the Quran, he had been given like command over the elements, especially the winds. Right. And so he could have that power to command the air to create that, like that lift. Yeah. Winds blow, create lift under our carpet so that we can fly. Yeah. So it wasn't the Wright brothers that were the first ones to fly after <laughs> all. It was King Solomon. So Marina Warner writes in Stranger Magic, Solomon's magic controls a natural source of energy, the winds, Aerodynamics need both to streamline the vehicle and to harness the power, but still the principle behind the flying carpet is not as absurd as it seems at first glance. A people of skilled navigators and sailors, the Arabs and other Middle Easterners, envisaged a form of sailing through the air on a sheet like a king of Spinnaker. So that detail itself is interesting to me because like so often we think of people who lived hundreds of years ago as being less intelligent and less capable. And they weren't. They were steps behind where we are today because we have the advantage of like time. Yeah. And like the like accumulation of thousands of leaps of knowledge and like technology. Right. But they they weren't less intelligent. And so it's interesting because it's like this like flying carpet as like an idea of like something and being like lifted up and held by the wind. Mm-hmm. It's like it wasn't totally out there. Yeah. Thank you for agreeing with me. So also something that was like like interesting and of note about like carpets. I mean, this stuff is more like speculative of like why a carpet and not like why like another thing. Like one reason is that carpets, rugs were used for prayer and for worship. Mm-hmm. And so they're like, you know what? If it's something that's being powered by, like, the power of God, it wouldn't be surprising if it was, like, you know, a prayer rug. If it was, like, something, like a carpet that would be what would function. And also another thing is that, like, when people were traveling through the deserts, they would have, like, carpets, flooring, both to use as like dividers, tapestries to like hang when they stop somewhere. But it basically was like bringing and conquering, you know, the outside nature with something that's like man-made. Right. And so it's like, even when like traveling, it's, it's something that travels with people, even when they're not flying. It was something yeah. that like moved along with that people. That they would bring with them. Yeah. So that's, those are a couple of thoughts as to like, why a flying carpet versus, yeah, like a flying anything, like a flying table or, a, you know. Right. It's yeah. like, no, this there's there's some reasons why it could have been that that was what was picked as like a flying object. So, yeah, just a little information, <laughs> just some fun stuff to think about with like flying carpets because it was one of the first. It was the, the first, first time we've time come across it. it. Yeah. On the podcast. Yeah. So I think another thing that was the first time that we came across this little like feature and item were automata. 
So automata is like, it's the plural of automaton, which are... Ancient robots. (laughs) Yeah, basically ancient robots. It's creatures that are not living nor dead. And a quote from Robert Irwin's Arabian Nights, A Companion. It says, while there were many frauds associated with treasure hunting, nobody doubted that there were real fortunes to be won and real perils to be encountered. Besides the threats posed by booby traps and by djinn, The treasure hunters often had to encounter homicidal automata. (laughs) (laughs) A great deal of the ancient Greek expertise concerning ingenious mechanical devices powered by wind, water, weights, and springs had been handed on to the medieval Arabs, and Arab engineers continued to develop and refine devices for telling the time, dispensing drinks, and playing music. However, in popular belief, such automata primitive robots were powered by magic and it was widely believed that ancient kings and wizards had set magical driven automata to guard over their hidden treasured hordes Mm. so it says the automaton a creature who is neither living nor dead features frequently in the nights as an uncanny accessory in its tales of wonder they all simulate life, but there is no life in them. Mm-hmm. So we saw this in the rider that was up on the hill that was made of brass. Oh, yeah. That when they had to like po- like point the way, it was this thing that like it wasn't alive. Right. But it also had the capability to like move and point them in the direction that like they were supposed to go. Yeah. And then you had the guards that were standing guard um, mm-hmm. over this lady uh, that chopped off Talib's head. May he rest in peace. Yes. Or pieces. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but yeah, definitely homicidal automata yeah. and like yeah. and that thing. And even I think it's interesting, this idea of like simulating life while there's no life in them, because that also was the that that queen that woman right. who was laying there that they had done something to make it look like she was, was alive. alive that coated there was... her eyeballs with mercury so that she could look like they were still gleaming yeah but yeah like it's imitating life without there actually being life inside which is a really interesting you know that like even today we make like movies and we talk about like the philosophical implications of like you know, artificial intelligence and stuff like that. The uncanny valley and the yeah, like, yeah. yeah, just, yeah. Of that it, it is weird that for a very long time, humans have imagined creating other people that aren't quite people, like creating these living things that aren't really like living, don't really have like, right. like souls yeah. or like powers or desires, like beyond, you know, what is like, mechanically put into them or in this case like magically put into them Mm -hmm. and so it is interesting when we're talking about like treasure hunting and treasure hunting in the nights and how people were really really interested in that yeah and this idea of like different types of booby traps that they like imagined would be out there but then it wasn't beyond the realm of possibility to them that like some of these things might be magically enabled yeah so it's like they they had the engineering and the technology to create traps that were based on like weight, whether it was like sand 
you know, right. shifting, causing the weight to be different. I mean, uh, if anybody is thinking of Indiana Jones, like, yeah. Which we that's all like, are. Yeah. And it's like some of those things, like they weren't beyond like the realm of possibility. Yeah. But people didn't understand. It reminds me of that famous quote by, you know, Arthur C. Clarke, where it talks about like any sufficiently advanced technology is indistinguishable from magic. Like if you just don't understand the technology behind it, you'll be like, it's just magic. It just works. Like I think about that with cell phones and stuff all the time. It's like, how does a cell phone actually work to get like my voice or like to get a video to me on this little glass brick that I hold in my hand? It's like it might as well be magic for how much that I understand it. But especially if you were to take it to someone who has no understanding or didn't grow up with it thinking it was normal. Yeah. They'd be like, witchcraft, I'm going to burn you at the stake. <laughs> exactly. Like, oh. So I can totally see how it's like. Alchemy. They, you worship a false god. I'm going to murder yeah. you. Yeah. Like, it's the yeah. same. Yeah. But like back in those days, like you say, there are those, there are these devices that people just didn't really understand how they worked. And so it's easy to take that and be like, oh, there's like obviously magic that's powering some of these things. And then to extrapolate upon that to be like, well, if it's magic, then it can do more stuff than is actually possible with the technology that they might have had. Yeah. Which, I mean, I think about like when more modern explorers were going through the different like uh, burial places in like pyramids and tombs and stuff. And they thought, Oh, there's, Mm -hmm. there's a curse on this because these different people had this kind of lung poisoning or like the people were dying and they didn't know why. And they were like, it must be the curse of like the, like this, like King, a curse that was like put on it. And so they thought that it was like magic. It was this like curse when really it was like um, spores that were in the air bad luck and confirmation bias like you know like because it was anytime somebody died no matter if they died like 20 years afterwards they're like (gasps) the curse finally caught up to them finally got and it's like no when they were 97 years old it's (laughs) It's like like, they would have died anyway but yeah it's like when they didn't understand what was killing them but they saw people were dying it did they thought oh it's a curse it's magic it was like something that was put on them and so it's interesting because it's like you know we're not completely past that like line of thinking oh yeah even though you know we read a story where there was this curse that was like oh come down and play with me in the water and they're like yeah (laughs) and they like jump in and we're like like okay obviously that kind of magic isn't real, like it doesn't exist. And then, you know, at the same time, we also might fall into believing in other types of like magic trickery or curses or whatever. Right. Yeah. So, yeah, it's fascinating. Yeah. And speaking of death, I mean, I think we got to get to the like that main depressing theme of so many of these cities that they were visiting about just death yes. which i think is interesting too because it plays it like talking about automata Thomas, I like plays into that as well like there, there really is this like exploration between what separates the dead from the living and you've got creatures on all sides like you've got literal corpses i did also think it was interesting that the first place they go is like eerily empty and they find this like giant mausoleum where people have been buried but they don't actually see any bodies they yeah. just see like, it's not a mausoleum, they said, I guess, tombs, like, stacked on top of each other. But they yeah. just see that, like, kind of the aftermath. And then they go on to another one where they do actually see 
like corpses lying in the street, like it's just taking it through kind of this progression, getting more and more along, like bringing death, like you were saying, you know, like when you keep your own mortality in front of your eyes, like it's a helpful thing because it helps you focus on the right things. It puts things in the right perspective. It's one thing to see like graves and tombs and like the writing on them. That's like, remember you're going to die someday. So focus on the good things. Like, okay, that does help. But then you go to like the next level away from abstraction to like the actual dead bodies that are in the streets. It's like death becomes very real when you're seeing a body that once was alive and now is dead. Yeah. As opposed to just looking at like a grave. Right. Yeah. It's like, it's a big difference. I mean, And it's kind of going along the journey that they're going on, like in this discovery of the importance they need to place on the immaterial things that they should be focusing on rather than wealth. Like as they're going on, they don't have a good grasp of that. So they're taking their first step into seeing it in the one way. And then since they've learned that lesson, they go in and they can now learn a greater lesson. Like so the, the ramping up of the graphic nature of their mortality mementos mortality reminders yeah kind of mirrors their own journey of understanding about their own mortality and learning the lesson that they're supposed to learn which i thought was really interesting yeah i mean what i one thing that i thought was really interesting was how you have three different examples of like these like cities being destroyed that it wasn't all like the same thing it was disease like mm-hmm. plague coming through pandemic uh going through and killing people and being like there's no army that can protect you from that there's no yeah there's no Money. rich that you can yeah no riches that you can use to like buy off a plague which i thought it was interesting thinking about that like in the the day that we live now where we do yeah. have more technology and the people who have more money are able to get better healthcare and they are able to actually right. buy more time with that money that they have. Yeah. Um, so I, it was interesting because I felt like the, the message was like a little bit different there, like from yeah. our yeah. day, which it's interesting because it is like, I mean, death does come for us all, but. But money can actually help buy you one more day in some instances. Yeah. And like the, the wealthy do have a better chance of living longer when it comes to like disease coming to get them. But even then, you know, it's <laughs> what I was thinking about was I was like, so these stories, they really emphasize like the height to which an empire can like try to achieve, but then also like the impossibility that those empires will like last forever. And so it's like, you could be the greatest king or have the greatest empire of all time or, you know, the largest corporation. And you could have the greatest technology at your fingertips. Again, in this story, these empires had like these like automata So just like cutting edge tech and you could even have the capability to fly through the air or go into space and you could be the richest man to ever be blasted into space, but you are still going to die. Yeah. I'm talking about Jeff Bezos. Not the first time he's come up on the podcast. And like, who's the other guy? uh, Elon Musk. No, no, no. The other guy who said like this week, he's going to go up three days before. It's like Richard Branson, I think. Oh, Richard. Yeah, Richard Branson, Virgin Galactic. <laughs> and like, I'm sick. Like, I'm sickened by 
like these billionaires being like, oh, no, I'm going to achieve the greatest thing. I'm going to achieve like this, like I'm going to be the first billionaire. I'm going to be the richest person to ever. I'm like, yeah, but at the end of the day, this this story resonates that it's like, you know, you're still going to die. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah. But it was like funny well, that I was like thinking that as I was reading it, that it was like, no, as large as your corporation is, like empires crumble. Yeah. And it might, your empire might last longer than another, like, person's through history, but, like, we we are, we all die. Yeah, it's really interesting, too. The, it's kind of like an, it's the same theme, but it's sort of an opposite of what we encounter in this story. I thought of, like, the poem Ozymandias by Percy Bysshe Shelley. Which I was am most familiar with because it was uh, the trailer to a great episode of Breaking Bad of the same title. But talking about how like in that they co- they talk about this statue that's like fallen over, tumbled. There's like a plaque next to it that says, you know, look around at, at all the greatness that surrounds you. But it's literally in the middle of a desert. There's only a bit of stone that remembers that person. But the kingdom that they built up that they're bragging about is completely gone. Where in these stories, it's kind of the opposite in that the people are gone and the remembrance sometimes of the people are really gone, but we see the remnants of what their civilization was. But they're both kind of teaching the same lesson. The other thing was like, you know, ironic, obviously. And this was as well in a different way. So I'm glad that you mentioned that because Robert Irwin actually, he mentioned that in his book because like the the djinn that's been trapped in stone, it's like yeah. he had, you know, been at this false idol who had climbed into this stone so that he could, you know, whisper stuff to the king and kind of, you know, see this like lady. He yeah. then gets permanently trapped as like a punishment inside a different stone and so yeah. Robert Irwin, he compared that to Ozymandias and said, you know, like, it's this that same imagery of this, like, this giant statue that's out in the middle of this, like, waste. They never go into a city there. That's the only one where, like, they don't find a city. It's just yeah. this statue in the middle of this, this desert telling about how the destruction was total right. and complete annihilation. Yeah. And he's wow, like, that's okay. interesting. So I'm glad that you mentioned that. Nice. Yeah. Me too. <laughs> there is this whole thing of, like, there are dead people that we still know about and we still talk about. And that's a thing that people try to do, like, you know, being the first person to go in space on like a private spacecraft, like that's going to cement your name in history in some way, yeah. you know, so that people are going to be reading about you or hearing about you for a long time. Whereas like you may not be there to enjoy that, which that is kind of part of the point, too. It's like, what does it matter if people are still talking about you 200 years from now if you're not around to, like, get a little boost of pride that people know your name? You know, it's like, really, is it worth anything? Yeah. I don't know. And is it and is it worth, like, giving up stuff that you, like, could have done? You know, like, do you want to be remembered for being, like, the first person who ended up in space? Or for, like, being the first person to, like, f- like, fund charitable hospitals around the world like it's yeah. it's like what what do you want to be remembered for and it's like i want to be remembered for having the most stuff ever <laughs> and yeah. i mean one thing that was interesting that i was like reading about that kind of like goes back to that is like 
this is like a string of thoughts. So follow me on this uh, travel through the journey of my, the garden of my, no, I messed it. I bungled it all up. A walk through the garden of your mind. <laughs> Please enjoy this walk through the garden of my mind. Um, but I was thinking about, um, like in Stranger Magic, Marina Warner talks about with flying carpets, um, that that idea of flight gives you this kind of like like a long view over everything. It gives you like a greater perspective, both like literally and even like psychologically. And I've heard astronauts talk about this same thing, like when they go up into space, when they like look down on Earth. And they realize like how small and little Earth is. They realize like there's no borders between like the countries that we're all just on this one planet all together. And that like we need to do something to like to care for each other and care for this planet because like it is our little spaceship in the middle mm. of this like vast cosmos. And so they come back down to earth with this like greater perspective after, you know, being on this like flying carpet that, yeah. that was invented through like the magic of our brains and science. And the like part of me is very much hoping that like Jeff Bezos, Richard Branson, they do go up into space. I mean, I'm upset because it's billions of dollars that they're, using to go up here but you know but yeah anyway i'm hoping that they'll get up there and they'll be flying around our little blue marble and they'll look down and they'll realize like this this is it like this is the most important thing is taking care of this planet that we have right now what can i do when i get back down to earth to make this place better because that's all we have. Like I'm hoping right. that, you know, being up on that magic carpet will give them some kind of perspective on, you know, the same way that in this story, we gain this, like these travelers gain this perspective of like, we're all going to die. How does that affect how we're going to live our life? Cause it's like Talib, his like last thing after learning all of this stuff, the last thing that he did on this earth was reach to take some gold after he's standing on all this wealth. He reaches to grab this woman's like pearls and dress, jewelry, anything that she has to take it. Yeah. And he gets his head chopped off. Yeah. So it's like, are we going to be that kind of like people also that like, we just keep taking, taking, taking until like our head gets chopped off until like we die. And then it's yeah. like, and what was that? What was that worth? Was it worth it? Did you use your time wisely to live? Yeah, this uh, this story got me thinking uh, a lot of things. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it was good. I really enjoyed it. As like, it hit a lot of different levels. Like, again, it hit really hard as far as the messages that it's talking about, about like death. And it's something that, not specifically death, but that I've been thinking about too, is like, making the most of like my time that I have, like what is the best thing that I can be doing? Because there's so many things that are pulling me in all these different directions that are taking up so much time. And it's like, I feel like so much time is getting spent on things that I don't really want to be doing and taking time away from the things that I do. But it's like, what are the things that are actually important? And some, some of those might not be the things that I want to do either. You know, it might be things yeah. that are, that I see as like pulling my time away from these things. And really I just need to let go of these other desires that I think might be more important to focus on the things that are like, you know, my family or 
whatever the case may be. Yeah. You know, in this in these stories, they make a big argument about uh, with the religious argument yeah. about devoting your life to God and living by the well. I don't. No, I think like I like where you're going with this because it is like. Th- one of the main takeaways of this story is this very strong, like religious theme of devoting your life to God, devoting your life to doing what you think like God wants you to do, how he wants you to be guided, not being sinful. Because like that was a big thing that they talked about was just like being greedy, lusting after things like, uh, like all of these things that were sinful and yeah. move them away from what they had been taught was what God wanted from them. They weren't doing those things. And then when it was too late, it was too late. They couldn't, you know, reverse all the stuff that they had done with their lives. And so I think, yeah, like, obviously, different people who read this story value different things in their life differently. Because, yeah. you know, I even think, I mean, I'm upset with like, you know, Jeff Bezos and Richard Branson because their values do not align with my values. But then again, their values have apparently, you know, gotten them a lot of like physical things in this world. So they might be happy. They might be happy with what all the choices that they've made and what what they've done with their lives. They might be very pleased and think, wow, that was a life well spent. Um, but I am currently disagreeing with them very vehemently, apparently on this podcast, (laughs) um, because it's not my values. It's not, those aren't the things that I find value in. And so, I mean, and even in this story, you know, when they're, they're talking about this message of like, you need to devote your life to God. I still get a good message out of that, even though that's, that's not where I place like my highest value. I do place my highest value on like doing good to other people. And so that's something that I feel like I share in common with this story that like, even though it's coming from like a different motivator, like it's still like that, that value that's driving my life is like that. I don't want to make other people's lives worse for the sake of my life. I want to make the world a better place before I die. So yeah, whether you got a religious message from this, a spiritual message from this story, or just like a general message about like remembering that we all will die someday and to keep that in mind. Yeah, I think this story is like really great and powerful in that regard. So one of the last things that I wanted to just like touch on really quickly was something that I found absolutely fascinating to hear just this little like snippet of and it's like the tiniest piece of a story that is deeply intriguing. And it was in Robert Irwin's The Arabian Nights of Companion. <laughs> but he says, in much the same way as a reader of Homer's Iliad inspired Schleiman to look for the historical ruins of Troy, so Sir Henry Layard's childhood reading of tales about the ebony horse and the city of brass led him as an adult in the 1840s to uncover the ruins of ancient Nineveh. Mm. There have been so many stories throughout times of like ancient empires that have risen and fallen and some of them end up existing. So it's, it's just like there have been ancient civilizations that have existed and then been destroyed all throughout times, but we still have stories about them 
in legends. And one of the first ones that comes to mind for me is Pompeii, the lost city of Pompeii, because there was an eruption in AD 79 of Mount Vesuvius that destroyed several Roman cities, one of which was Pompeii. And Pliny the Younger was an eyewitness to this happening, and he wrote about it. Mm -hmm. Um, But for like years and years, centuries and centuries, there was like debate over whether this place really existed, whether this like really happened or not. So then in like 1592, which again, a long time ago, this one architect, he was like digging like an aqueduct and he ran into some ancient walls that were covered in like paintings and inscriptions. And so like, it was just like a brief little like thing where he was kind of like, huh, okay. And then he like, didn't really like, he kept quiet about it. Nothing really happened. And then in 1689, another person saw like a wall inscription that mentioned town chancellor of Pompeii. And he was like, huh, that's interesting since there's these like stories of Pompeii. And so like slowly over the years, there've been like like for hundreds of years, just these tiny little like discoveries of like more and more of it until finally there was some like excavation that was actually happening in like the 1950s on like a bigger scale that was like going into it. But because all this was like stuck under this like volcanic ash, the city was like so perfectly like preserved. And so it was like this amazing thing. The more we uncover, I mean, they're they're still working on it. There are still discoveries that are being made like in this like lost city of Pompeii. And so like these stories of these like empires, these cities that existed and then one way or another were crumbled and destroyed like we're still finding pieces of those. And so it's incredible to me that it's like an archaeologist, a person who's like deeply interested in this. He's listening to stories growing up of like the Ebony Horse, which is a story we haven't covered yet that's in the Thousand and One Nights, and the City of Brass. And he then as an adult is like, you know what, I'm going to go and look for some of these like lost ruined civilizations. He he's like, this is inspiring. Even though to me it's deeply depressing. Um, he's like reading these stories and he's inspired to like go and look. And in yeah, the 1840s, he was able to uncover where the ruins of the ancient city of Nineveh were. And so, like, again, the more we're like looking into the Arabian Nights, the Thousand One Nights the more it's like just incredible to me how much like these stories move people like metaphorically, but then Mm -hmm. also very, very literally to these marvelous journeys. Thank you for listening to the fairy tellers. If you enjoy what we're doing, please leave us a review or share us with your friends. Also consider supporting us on Patreon for access to exclusive bonus content, including outtakes and monthly bonus episodes at patreon.com slash thefairytellers. Special thanks to Andrew Foray for our music and to Clarice Inch for our artwork. And of course, a big thank you to all our patrons. Without all of you, this show wouldn't be possible. 
Fairy tales are always more interesting when something is added to them. Each new telling recharges the narrative, making it crackle and hiss with cultural energy. Maria Tatar. Okay, so sorry, you're gonna have to edit and pare down three and a half hours worth of uh, <clears throat> stuff. We're just gonna set this one out raw. <laughs> <laughs> How horrible would that be? Oh, man. Um, we would either gain a million listeners or everyone would <laughs> be like. canceled. Yeah. They're like, oh, turns out these people are garbage.